I wonder why it is that we find the Psalms so compelling and so helpful. Well, I know for myself one of the reasons, certainly, is that we discover there men who, with repentant hearts, put their hope and their trust and their confidence in the Lord their God. And yet, at the same time, we see them struggling with all the same kinds of doubts and fears and trials that we also face today. In many ways, when we look at the psalmists, we see there men who are expressing themselves as what we might perhaps call a typical believer. And we discover them having a typical believer's typical experience. And yet they show us how that even through all of the difficulties, they're drawn again and again back to the Lord their God. And even in the midst of those difficulties, they can yet praise him. That perhaps is one of the reasons why we find the psalmist so compelling and so helpful. And this evening we're drawing to the close of our studies that we've been taking through Psalm 40. And we're going to pick up at verse 14. We finished off last week at verse 13. We pick it up at verse 14 this evening. And David's been considering uh, those who, in many ways, have made his life a real burden. Uh, many who would war against him for all kinds of different reasons and in many different ways. He speaks a lot about those who are his enemies and his adversaries. And at verse 14... I wonder, do we find David praying the prayer you never pray? Is verse 14 the prayer you never pray? If you're familiar with the Psalms, you'll frequently come across a kind of language which you'll rarely, if ever, hear spoken in a Christian church. Hardly ever will you hear it in a church prayer meeting. What are you to make of it? Now, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about language like this. Psalm 5. There's no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out into the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. Or Psalm 17. They have closed up their fat hearts with their mouths. They speak proudly. They've now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey. And like a young lion lurking in secret places, arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. Psalm 28. Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity who speak peace to their neighbours, but evil is in their hearts. Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavours. Give them according to the work of their hands. 
render to them what they deserve. Psalm 35, let them be put to shame and brought to dishonour who seek after my life. Be turned back and brought to confusion. Without cause they've hidden their net for me in a pit which they've dug without cause for my life. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly. Let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction. Let him fall. And then here in Psalm 40, let them be ashamed, brought to mutual confusion. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonour who wish me evil. Now, stating the reality of God's condemnation that is reserved for sin and for wickedness, warning people, warning the unconverted that judgment is coming, well, that's one thing. But what do we make about praying that God would move in judgment and condemnation against the sinful and the wicked and do it now? That moves us into a rather different place. Can we really do that? Should we? What about loving your enemies and doing good to those who curse you? What about offering your left cheek when you've just been struck on the right one? Because that's what Jesus said in Matthew 5 that we just read. And what about Paul in his letter to the Romans at chapter 12? Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. It's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And yet David prays that the Lord would act against those who are against him. So this kind of language that we discover in the Psalms as we're making our way through Psalm 40 and we, we read David uh, praying this to the Lord that those who are against him would be ashamed and brought to confusion and be driven backward and brought to dishonour. That on the face of it, seems to be at odds with what we read in the New Testament. So does this kind of language, as we find in the Psalms, have no place in a Christian's vocabulary? Just more proof that the Bible's full of hypocrisy and contradictions, says the smiling sceptic. Well, how would you answer them? What are you and I to make of this? Well, let's remember, first of all, we're reminded in the Psalms again and again, just as we are throughout the whole of God's word, 
there will always be people in the world who oppose the truth of God. Always. Some reject God outright, saying that they believe there is no spiritual realm whatsoever. Some are happy to entertain thoughts that God, or a God, or many gods do exist, but they reject God as he reveals himself in the Bible, preferring instead to invent a God of their own imagination, a God who will permit them to live as they see fit, a God who will still allow them to do that which is right in their own eyes. All such people are those who oppose those who stand in and stand on the promises of God. We will stand as children of the promise we just sang. Well, if you do, there'll be many who rise up against you. Now, their opposition, of course, will take many forms. And in these two verses, in Psalm 40, David, as it were, presents us with two ends of the spectrum. There are those who, dis who seek to destroy his life, verse 14, and there are those who just confront him with all kind of ridicule and mockery. That's what the words aha, aha are signifying. And so on one end we have those who are so incensed and outraged at what you stand for as a Christian, they would actually see you dead if they had the opportunity. And at the other side, there are those who at every turn would just make you the object of ridicule and mocking and scorn. You are an oddity in this world as a Christian. They don't understand you. They don't understand the things that you stand for. The things which society has now embraced, but you refuse to. You on your moral high ground, passing judgment on so many people and their lifestyles as they see it. This world of supposed tolerance that will only tolerate those who are prepared to tolerate them in return. There's genuine anger and even hatred today in some quarters towards Christian values and morality. You are a threat to their worldview. You prick their conscience every time you speak. Christ's church and the kingdom of God has always had the world warring against them. David knew all about it. And look at how he prays concerning them. Let them be ashamed, brought to confusion, driven backward, brought to dishonour. Let them be confounded. Which on the face of it does seem to stand in contrast to the teaching of the New Testament. <coughs> of course, one way that our enemies will be silenced is that they become converted. So that should always be our prayer. The early church had no greater foe than Saul of Tarsus. 
and God relieved the church of that burden. Not by destroying Saul, but by converting him. Although, of course, you can argue very clearly that by means of conversion, old Saul was indeed destroyed. The old man was done away. But God didn't have to strike him from the face of the earth to do that. He converted him wonderfully, powerfully. God might have removed him from the earth and sent him straight to the condemnation that he did deserve, but God didn't. He showed him grace. And as you read Paul, you discover that his heart for his fellow countrymen, which are, his heart for them is laid bare particularly movingly in chapters 9 to 11 of his letter to the Romans. You see that his heart for them is that they might be saved. And the teaching of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount is that our response in the face of opposition would stand as a powerful testimony. A testimony of grace, a testimony of mercy, a testimony which confronts those who would oppose us with their need of Christ and of his salvation. We should live lives of grace and we should heed the teaching of the New Testament that as much as it ever depends upon us, all that people will ever experience from us, from our words, from our actions, is love and grace. However, sometimes you'll see men and women sink so deep into sin and wickedness as their hearts grow ever harder that actually it is not unchristian at all to pray to the Lord that if they are not of his elect and if they are not to be saved and if they are not going to repent and turn from their sins, that God indeed would move in his mighty power and in his righteous justice and visit upon them the judgment and the condemnation that they deserve. That God's word and promise regarding the consequences of sin would not prove to be an empty threat. That he would show himself to be powerless to carry out the sentence that he has provided. That God's justice might stand. That God might continue to reign in righteousness for his namesake. That he would be vindicated. That he would be glorified. And it helps us perhaps to remember that that same Jesus who in Matthew 5 instructs us to love our enemies and who himself was the most perfect example of that in his earthly ministry at the same time when confronted with certain people spoke very sternly, very accusingly like to the Pharisees, brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. And he pronounced woes upon them. He declared them to be of their father, the devil. Now clearly, we remember that Christ had a wisdom that we don't possess. 
We remember that in his divinity, he's able to see into man's hearts in a way that we cannot. But we discover in Christ these two different ways of addressing different people. There have been times when Christians have resorted to pray against great evils in the world, that God would overcome them, that God would destroy them, that God would remove them from the world for the, great, the greater good of humanity, that righteousness and justice might be done. And the Bible shows us that in some situations, that's actually the biblical way to pray. That's the right way to pray. That when great evil raises its face, that we ask the Lord to move against such evil. And it's the Bible, with the Spirit's help, that teaches us and guides us in these things. Remember that clearly, we need great wisdom for this. And to have such wisdom, we need to wait patiently on the Lord as David prayed in the very first verse of Psalm 40. Perhaps we might even need to fast and pray as we saw Ezra leading the people to do that last Sunday morning. Because there's a spiritual battle we're engaged in and it's very real. And on the one hand, the Bible calls us to live as a wonderful example of love and grace and truth and righteousness before all men, whoever they are. But sometimes also, at the same time, it is right to get down on our knees before the Lord and pray that he would deal with the wicked and the unrighteous through his word and by his spirit he will grant us such wisdom as we need it for those things we see how we need the whole of the word of God to lead us and guide us and counsel us as to how we should live and so David addresses these conflicts that he has that come against him in verses 14 and 15 but that does not mean that he languishes in despair and neither must you because there's no need to. Because whilst we discover him praying, maybe the kind of prayer that we don't pray very often, what he also shows us is that even in the midst of these kinds of circumstances, the Christian can rejoice. We have here in verse 16 the reality of Christian joy. Even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of great difficulty, the reality of Christian joy. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation continually say, the Lord be magnified. So despite his experiences, David is able to speak of this other reality of walking with God. Although he has all of this oppression to contend with, he can, in the midst of it all, speak of rejoicing and gladness. This too 
is the typical experience of a typical believer. I wonder if it's yours. Are you only glad when you perceive that things are going well for you? Are you only glad then? So, an important question to ask yourself, you know. Am I only glad when it seems that everything's going well? That is a real test of Christian character. A real test of Christian character. How many people do you know, and at the slightest hint of trouble, the slightest problem, it's all doom and gloom, it's all woe is me. Have you ever heard a Christian say, a Christian mind, as I have, I've got nothing to be happy about. Nothing. Nothing. As a Christian. Nothing. Think about this. This is a Christian speaking. Someone known and loved by God. Someone for whom God came into the world to save them through the death of his son. Someone who has been born again and set free from the slavery of sin. A man or woman who now has new life in Christ. Who has the spirit of adoption within them. And they cry out and they mean it. Father. Someone with the assurance of sins forgiven. With the certain hope of heaven for all eternity. A man or woman who knows that one day, and in contrast to eternity, one day very soon, all their troubles, all their pains, all their anxieties, all their afflictions will be gone. Over. Someone who knows that in the meantime, they have the Lord's promise, he will be their tower of refuge and strength. I've got nothing to be happy about. Really? Really? Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 4. In all things we commend ourselves as minister of God and in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labours, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armour of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honour and dishonour, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. What a list he goes through. Always rejoicing. 
as having nothing yet possessing all things because they have Christ. It's all about perspective, isn't it? It's all about where you're looking. On what do you have your eyes fixed? On what do you have your heart fixed? On what do you have your mind fixed? It's about being clear as to where your heart and your treasure is. Is your greater concern, your welfare and your state and your circumstances here? Not that they should be of no concern, but are they your greater concern? Or to have your heart and your mind fixed on things above? Let those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. But do you notice, if you would have this rejoicing and if you would have this gladness, you have to be looking to him. You have to be seeking him. And that's a determined act of the will to do that. That's something you decide to do. In this situation, I'm going to seek the Lord. Fix my heart and my mind on him. Trust me, you'll find things to rejoice in. If you don't seek him, you'll never know this joy. But when you do find this joy, when you do seek him, then it is you'll find that your heart can rejoice even in the midst of distress. Paul says in Colossians 1, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Now I'm not saying this to beat you on the head with it or to make you feel bad about yourself. I'm laying it before you to tell you that this is the testimony of saints in times past. This is their real testimony and the promise of God in his word for you is that if you will turn to the Lord in your distress when you truly seek him, how do you do that? Well, you seek him in the word. You seek him in prayer. You seek him as you come amongst the Lord's people in worship, which is why when difficulties come and the going gets hard, the first place you should be is with the Lord's people, not staying away. There it is, you will find him. You will see again that in which you may rejoice. Your soul will find again that which makes you glad. Do you know any of this? You'll be reminded again of how great a salvation you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons this table's been given us, that we might remember this is what Christ has done for me. This is who Christ is to me. Is there not rejoicing to be found in this table? How the grace of God amazes me. Does that not lift your soul? I want you to be able to rejoice as David rejoiced, even in the midst of affliction. 
And there's something else that plays a big part in your rejoicing. As you look to the Lord and see again his salvation, you're reminded that in him you have hope. And in verse 17, we find the reality of Christian hope. I'm poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me, and he's my help and my deliverer. There's hope. Now last week we saw how Ezra encouraged the people to humble themselves before the Lord. The Bible says it's those who exalt themselves who will be humbled. It's those who humble themselves before him that God will exalt. The Pharisee who stood on the street corner, as Jesus told it, in his prayer rejoiced in his own strength, rejoiced in his own character, rejoiced in his own accomplishments, exalted himself before God. And he went away unheard and empty-handed. The tax collector who stooped low in a quiet corner, overwhelmed by his need, and whose only hope was this gracious and merciful God, and that that God would stoop down in his infinite loving kindness and meet him and help him. He it was who truly sought after God. He it was who that day experienced God's salvation and who left that place rejoicing and glad. He it was who knew only too well that he was poor and needy, but wonder of wonders, the Lord inclined to him and heard his cry, yes, him, and he'll do the same for you. And the Lord thought upon him, and the Lord will think upon you when you truly seek him with all your heart. This man was the object of God's love and grace and kindness, all directed right towards him. And that is the hope that you have when you come in repentance and faith and seek the Lord. And that tax collector is pictured as one now who knows God as his help and as his deliverer. And so now he lives in hope, real hope, certain hope, eternal hope. There are people here this evening and you long to find a cause of rejoicing in the midst of your distress. I want to tell you, you may. You may. There are people here this evening and you feel as if you're beyond help and that to have any sort of hope is just a fantasy. The Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. The Lord will have mercy on him. Let him return to God for he will abundantly pardon. He inclined to me he heard my cry. He brought me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. He set my feet on a rock. 
and establish my steps. He's put a new song in my mouth. Praise to my God. I'm poor. I'm needy. But the Lord thinks upon me. He's my help. He's my deliverer. Oh, that you would know that truth. Oh, that we can all leave this place this evening rejoicing in this. Our gracious God, may we be those, O Lord, who seek after you and having sought you, be found by you. That we might know, O Lord, that rejoicing, that hope, which is found only in you, to the praise and glory of your great name. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.